Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiast, to today's case file, My Brother's Keeper, The Menendez Brothers' Murder. It was August 20th, 1989, a warm summer evening in Beverly Hills, California, when a music executive and his wife met their untimely demise. The couple was sitting in their luxurious mansion, enjoying a quiet night together, when they were brutally gunned down in their 9,063-square-foot, six-bedroom, and nine-bathroom home. Despite the fact that their home was nestled in a tight-knit community, not one neighbor called the police during the deadly rampage. It was a bloodbath, a scene that could only be compared to a hit ordered by the mob. When senior forensic specialist for the Beverly Hills Police Department, Clark Fogg, arrived on the scene, he was met with a gruesome sight. An umbrella had to be held over his head to prevent him from being pelted in the head with bodily fluids and flesh that had hit the ceiling and the walls around the deceased. It was a chilling reminder that this wasn't just any murder. This was a calculated and vicious attack, leaving music executive Jose Enrique Menendez and his wife, Kitty Louise Menendez, riddled with gunshot wounds, Jose with six, and Kitty with ten. As the investigation began, the shocking truth started to unravel. The victim's own children, their two sons, became the prime suspects. Joseph Lyle Menendez, known as Lyle, and Eric Galin Menendez, It was a jaw-dropping revelation that left the entire world reeling. In a city with almost no homicides, these murders would account for the total number of homicides in 1989 for the affluent California community known for its social elites and the wealthiest population in the state. Beverly Hills 90210. The scene outside the mansion was one of chaos and heartbreak. One of the sons, Eric Menendez, was curled up in a fetal position in the front yard, sobbing uncontrollably. He had just lost both his parents in one fell swoop. As detectives, forensics, and law enforcement worked tirelessly through the evening, it became clear that this was a crime that would not only haunt the community for years to come, but keep them talking and investigating just this year, new shocking evidence of their honesty in 2023, 33 years since their parents were killed. August 20th, 1989 should have been a normal Tuesday evening in the posh Beverly Hills neighborhood where Jose Menendez and his wife, Kitty Menendez, called home. They had finally made it to the exclusive 90210 zip code and their 9,000 square foot home was proof. 
It was a cool 62 degrees that evening with barely a breeze. The evening night might have reminded Jose of Cuba. Jose was a Cuban immigrant who was experiencing the American dream. He had risen through the ranks of corporate America, a CPA turned ruthless businessman with industry experience in titan companies like Hertz Rent-A-Car, RCA, and Carlco Pictures. He had just founded Live Entertainment and it was going exactly as planned. He was rich, but he was working on being wealthy. As a CPA, he knew the difference. Kitty was a stay-at-home mom, although the title mom could be used loosely. She often let the kids fend for themselves and was not overly motherly. Her family had broken up due to infidelity and her mother had suffered from depression and alcoholism as a result. It is likely the apple didn't fall far. Lyle Menendez was their oldest. He took most after his dad. He didn't feel the roles applied to him. It may have been fatherly programming, but it presented itself in his behavior. He had avoided recent legal trouble when the family had lived in Calabasas. But Eric Menendez, his younger brother, had taken the charges for the duo. He was a minor and would only get a slap on the wrist for the string of burglaries they had committed against their neighbors. It seemed like Lyle could be a bad influence of sorts. Jose had bought Lyle entry into Princeton, but he couldn't hack it academically and he was kicked out for cheating on exams. Both boys excelled athletically, being star tennis players. Lyle had also been a swimmer. His grandfather had been a professional soccer player in Cuba and his grandmother an Olympic gold medalist. Genetically, the family was gifted on their father's side. Eric was not like Lyle. He was more like his mother than his father. At one point, his mother thought he might be gay and had encouraged him to date girls, which he did. The one thing the boy shared was a secret. A deep, dark secret that began back in Cuba with Jose. It turned out that Jose was sexually abused by his mother as a toddler, with the abuse had continued into his school years. The secret would pervade the relationship that Jose had with first Lyle. Lyle suffered the abuse for several years. It would be the week of August 20th, 1989 that Lyle would learn about his younger brother's secret, a secret that would push both brothers over the edge. Eric had shared with his older brother Lyle that their father had been sexually abusing him for years. Lyle confronted his parents about the abuse, threatening to expose his father, who was a prominent figure in Hollywood. Both boys had thought that they had been hiding the sexual abuse from Kitty as a way to protect her, but it was at the time that they discovered that she had been aware of the abuse all along, allowing it to continue unchallenged. Jose threatened both boys, shouting, You made your decision and I'll make mine. Kitty was angry, Jose was angry, and Lyle and Eric were terrified. Terrified what their father would do and what their mother would allow him to get away with. I was seven years old when all of this came out, so I was pretty young. But even at that age, I was watching Unsolved Mysteries, and I was really big into all that stuff. So I remember this very well. However, covering this case, definitely my perspective has changed quite a bit. I was very careful not to just take information from what was reported by the media or what people wrote in their blogs and really listen to the case itself and to expert testimony to really put all of this together. First, I want to say in Beverly Hills, as you heard, their homicide rate was very low back then. I'm not sure what their homicide rate is today, but they would process about two homicides a year. The two homicides that took place that year were the only two homicides that took place that year. So two. They would describe how horrible the crime scene 
looked. Now, we have pictures here that we're looking at, and I've actually seen some crime scenes in person. And I'll say that from the pictures, it doesn't look as gruesome as they painted it to be. Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know. You know, when somebody says that an umbrella had to be held over their head to prevent brain matter or bodily fluids or whatever that was either either on the ceiling or walls from hitting them, that sounds pretty significant. Again, but when I look at the pictures, the pictures don't paint as gruesome of a picture as what was kind of pushed out there. Do they look bad? Yes. When you take into account the fact that they were killed by their kids, does it look bad? Absolutely. Before I kind of go into some more of the details, I'd like to hear y'all's perspective on the crime scene and how things were laid out and um, what you think about the scene and the murders. Well, I've heard about this case a few times and how people described it, and it definitely doesn't look as bad as how people make it to be. The mom got shot four times around the head and the dad only once, and then the other times were like on his arms and his leg. It kind of looks like they wanted to kill the mom more. I will say that the ammunition that was used was not ammunition that you would typically choose to commit a murder. It was buckshot and birdshot. And so that's typically not the type of ammunition that you would choose to use to, to kill someone. It's actually ammunition that you would choose to use for home self-defense. So when you fire any type of a, of a buckshot or a birdshot, it basically is the size of the pellets and they just disperse. So it's like shooting it from a funnel and then they spread out. And the further away you are from the target, um, the more dispersed it is when it hits you, uh, meaning that the less damage it causes. Obviously, if you're right in front of the gun, then you're going to get the full brunt of it all at one time. But if you were going to commit a murder with a shotgun, if you knew you wanted to kill someone with a shotgun, then you would use a slug. A right. slug would be <laughs> which something <wasn't> used. <laughs> which wasn't used. Um, but it could have been because of their inexperience. When they went to go buy it, and they could have said they were getting it for self-defense. And so someone may have recommended that type of uh, ammunition uh, for that weapon for self-defense. Because what's good about a uh, buckshot in a home is that if you're not right in front of the wall, typically the buckshot won't penetrate the drywall all the way through. Even if it does, only a few pellets get through. So it's less likely that you'll shoot someone in the other room. We have a shotgun at home and we keep buckshot in our shotgun for that same purpose so that we don't accidentally kill someone sitting in the living room or someone sleeping in a bedroom. That's really not the choice of ammunition that you would have really chosen. Um, if they would have used slugs, then it would have been a more horrific murder scene. Right. They wouldn't have needed the four shots to the face to take her out. It probably would have been a lot more devastating. A slug is just one? And it yeah. Goes. A slug is like a metal core. It's like a big metal core bullet that comes out at one time. It's like one big solid. But oh. buckshot is like a lot of little BBs. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just for your awareness... Any time that a firearm is used to commit a crime, the only way for them to know for sure the distance that somebody was from their intended target is to have the actual firearm. So if you don't have the actual firearm, you can guess based on the spread of the pellets is what they're called, the BB-shaped things that come out of the, the buckshot or the birdshot. The further away that you are, the more spread out the pellets are. The closer you are, the closer together the pellets are. Um, so this also causes issues with being able to tell if something is indeed a true wound or if it's part of one wound because they don't count each pellet really as a wound. For some of these injuries on them both, Kitty may not have been hit as many times as kind of what they're saying, 
but they're trying to attribute certain pellets to a certain wound and say, this is wound one, this is wound two. Those were a couple things that came out during the trial. The other thing is, so for, for anybody that knows anything about the case, you know that at one point it had come out that this could have been a mob hit. And people were saying things like um, they did what's called kneecapping because Jose Menendez had a gunshot wound to one of his legs. I believe it was his left leg. And it was close to the knee area. It was not kneecapping. The wound actually looked like it, it was fired almost a little bit towards the inside of the leg and then came out the outside of the leg, but definitely not kneecapping as they referenced it. Also, Something else to kind of point out is that when people are talking about crime scenes, I think it's smart to do a little bit of um, research on your own to kind of know what it is that they're talking about. If you're interested and you want to believe what it is that's being said, because sometimes some of the stuff is inaccurate when they're pointing things out, you know, like the wounds, you know, saying that somebody was shot multiple times and, you know, come to find out there's pellets. My youngest daughter had a babysitter whose daughter Um, while she was babysitting her was at her house sitting outside on her front porch and her neighbor um, was killed. There was a couple people in the house that were killed and he fired buckshot. And when he fired the buckshot, one of the pellets hit her daughter in the chest, went into her lung and ended up collapsing her lung. She wasn't even real close to the area where he was firing, but she just happened to be hit with one of the pellets even though she wasn't the intended target. So just something to be aware of. But the firearms were never recovered in this case, if you guys aren't aware. So this was not something that they were able to test to see how far indeed they actually were away from Kitty and Jose. For two rich kids in Hollywood, August 20th, 1989 should have been parties, girls, and maybe some recreational drugs. But for Lyle and Eric Menendez, their lives were at the precipice of an explosion. Eric Menendez had shared with his brother that he had been being molested by his father for years. Lyle knew it was true because he had also been molested by his father. He tried to urge his brother to leave with him, but Eric was terrified of his dad. Everyone who engaged his father, Jose Menendez, said he was an imposing and a scary figure. Lyle was like his father, and although he was terrified of him, he engaged him, confronting him about the sexual abuse in their Hollywood home. What Jose had not known is that the brothers had purchased shotguns, which sat waiting in Lyle's car. As the argument escalated and Lyle demanded that the abuse of his brother stop, Jose Menendez and Kitty retreated to the den, closing the boys out. Lyle had drawn a line in the sand. He was prepared to out his father to the world if the abuse continued. Jose had crossed that line and ordered Eric to go to his room. This was typical of the abuse pattern for Jose, who would either send his son to his room or take him there and abuse him. Are you going to let this happen? He shouted to his mother. He was disgusted to have recently learned that she had been aware of the abuse all along and had never lifted a finger to stop it. The two boys, motivated by fear and anger, retrieved the shotguns from the car and returned to the 9,000-square-foot mansion together and walked into the den where their parents were. Jose was standing, but the initial shotgun blast severed his femur and sent him slumping back into the sofa. Kitty stood from the couch in protest, raising her hand to protect her face. The initial shotgun blast dumped her onto the couch, and as she absorbed the blow, 
She rolled over onto the ground. She may have tried to crawl, but didn't get far. Fifteen gunshots later, the room would be full of smoke from the gunpowder. Flesh and blood would be peppered onto the walls and the ceiling. Shotgun wadding would be discovered on the ground, although all the shell casings would have been removed. The Hollywood police detective investigating the double homicide would describe the scene as one of the most horrific crime scenes in the history of Hollywood. Charlie, you have an emergency? Yes, please. Uh, what's the problem? Sorry, kill my parents. Pardon me? Sorry, kill my parents. What? Who? Are they still there? Yes. The people? Who? No, no, no. <laughs> were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. It would take months before the brothers would be implicated in the crime and years before both would be convicted of first-degree murder. First of all, I think that the police didn't do a very good job when they got to the scene. And the reason that I say that is because when when you have a murder scene, it doesn't matter who the people are that are there, who's involved, who you think's involved, who was murdered, who wasn't murdered. It doesn't matter. You treat every case the exact same way every single time. And if you don't, you're going to have errors and you're going to have gross errors, such as they weren't tested for gunpowder residue. And had they have been, they might've been arrested that night. I think that part of their wealth also played into that factor because I think that they just were, were thinking, these are rich kids, they have no problems. Like there's no reason for them to kill their parents. I think that that, that was part of what weighed in. I think if it would have been in a different zip code, that whole process would have been done a little differently. I don't know that because one of the statements that one of the guys made was that in all his years, mind you, only two murders a year, but in all his years of experience that the way that you know, both Lyle and Eric were responding when they arrived seemed to be very genuine and cool that you thought that, but you should still be doing your job the exact same way, regardless of how you feel or what you feel like your years of experience have entitled you to feeling. You should still do the same process every single time. You shouldn't not do something because you think, oh, I don't think maybe they're you know, they did anything wrong or, oh, well, I think because we're in this neighborhood, we shouldn't do it. None of those should even, you know, should be a factor in pursuing a homicide investigation. Yeah, I agree with that. But I know that people have a tendency to take shortcuts. And I think that was a shortcut that was taken that caused the investigation to last longer than it should have. If they would have done their job properly, then they would have identified the Menendez brothers as the shooters right away. And it actually might have helped them in their defense because I feel like part of what hurt them was the fact that after the murders, they went on shopping sprees, they spent money, they went traveling, and they acted as if everything was okay and nothing was amiss. And that, I think, worked against them when it came down to motive. That's true. I feel like that allowed the narrative of the motive to be financial gain. And I think that's really what hurt them the most because they did stand to gain. Actually, they gained, what, $16 million. The estate was, yeah, valued at almost $16 million. Right. 
So that, that created the, the narrative of the motive. They would have been captured that same night. That narrative never would have started and their behavior would have been different. And then when the abuse came out, it would have been more believable. Even if they would have turned themselves in and said, we killed our parents, we were being abused, the self-defense portion of that would have made more sense and would have been more believable. But because they hid it so well and they lied so well about it and they were so convincing at the murder scene, it makes it hard to believe them. I even had a hard time believing them until I found out some more stuff. I actually went through these these kind of ups and downs of like, I feel bad for him. I don't feel bad for him. I feel bad for him. I don't feel bad for him. And really what it took was me listening to all this different expert testimony, all these different like, and, and as I started hearing all these different things and hearing the family who spoke and, you know, I don't care what anybody says, it, you're not going to get a lot of people to come and lie for you. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Like that's just not going to happen. You might get one or two people to come live for you on a stand, which isn't smart because they're kind of putting themselves out there, but you're not going to get a whole bunch of people to do it. And the fact that they had so many people who came in, who testified about things that happened years ago concerning the brothers that had to do with physical abuse, sexual abuse. It, but I don't think nobody ever said, I saw Jose sexually abusing Eric or Lyle no one ever came and said I saw it happening so it's all just it's all just hearsay well we say that and and you know one of the reasons that they had these experts come in is because and and this was something that really upset me about the case was that there was a lot of emotions in the case that shouldn't have been part of the case like your personal need to win or you really believe this but you don't care what the evidence says and you don't care what the experts say women aren't going to feel like men the prosecutor in the first trial had actually made a comment and was kind of almost arguing with the expert about yeah but how would a guy react like basically trying to say that as a male you should react differently to being victimized than a female that they don't react in the same way, that they would react differently. They also tried to bring up the fact that they thought maybe Eric was gay. That didn't have anything to do with it. Is you being gay have anything to do with you being, you know, victimized sexually? I think it's important to understand that this is in 1989 when homosexuality wasn't as commonplace as it is now and it wasn't as acceptable as it is now. Additionally, it's at a time when we didn't know a lot about sexual abuse and I don't even know that we had policies in place for sexual harassment in the workplace during in 1989. That the, it's a different world today. So looking back through today's lenses is going to give you a different picture of all the things that we should have been better about during that time. So so that's a great call out. Yeah, but I think had people not have had those personal things interjected in that time frame while they were pursuing justice, which should have been your goal. At the end of everything, your goal should have been to have justice for Jose and Kitty and to have justice for whatever was took place that put the brothers in that position. I, I feel like he got what he deserved. And I think that Kitty got what she deserved as well, <laughs> personally. Yeah, you know, when I was looking in the case at first, you know, I was kind of feeling bad for the mom because here you're with somebody who's abusive. And I always try to put myself in all the different perspectives to see like, what would I think if I were him or what would I think if I were her? I know I'm not her and I know I'm not him or, you know, whatever, but how might I look at it through their eyes? And for her, what kind of got me in the beginning was she was abused by her husband. She was cheated on by her husband. 
She was basically the, you do whatever I tell you to do. You're the, you know, you're here to, to do whatever with the kids to, to stay home and be the person that takes care of the house. I'm going to go work and I'm in charge of the family is basically kind of how I saw him. And so I kind of felt bad. And even the brothers at different points in times would talk about how they felt bad about their mom, how they didn't want to say things to their mom because she was scared of their dad and how they didn't want to say things to their mom because she didn't stick up for them. And even early on, so before um, she made a lot of comments about basically giving up her future for having the kids. Well, they didn't ask to be born. And so she had her kids and she had a college degree, but she ended up not using that college degree. She stayed home with the kids and then she never, to my knowledge, ever went to work, you know, at the, after that point, once she had the kids, even when they were grown up, she continued to just kind of move around every time Jose moved around for a new job, which he changed jobs. I won't say real frequently, but Lyle lived in nine houses. I want to say Eric lived in eight houses from the time they were born until, you know, the murders took place. At no point in time when all these different things were going on, did she intervene as a child when you're thinking your mom's the victim and then you find out that indeed she's been not maybe the one who's sexually abusing you because she was very verbally abusive that would impact them later psychologically, but you allowed for it to take place and you did nothing. Even the treatment with them in sports, six years old is pretty young to be treating your child like they're a teenager in a sport, you know, and those are kind of borderline. I wouldn't even say some people wouldn't even look at that as being abusive, but taking pictures of your kids nude. Those are some of the things that came out in court. And those were pictures, some, something that the boys just didn't say, like something that could be seen. Um, their dad was taking pictures of them nude when they were like seven, eight years old. I don't know a situation where I would ever do that and would ever feel comfortable with doing that regardless of the year or regardless of the situation, most people would think that's not normal behavior. And then when you hear things like when they went through the boys' medical records because, you know, they're trying to either prove or disprove the fact that they were abused, there's things that we've known and that we knew even back then because there was years of research even at that point that indicated whether or not somebody had been abused. And their medical records indicated that there was injuries that weren't reported that were, they didn't know what they were, lacerations that were like, um, one was one and a half inches um, big. There was a, a hematoma um, to the side of Lyle's face at the age of six. When Lyle was four, he was at a family function and his uncle said that Jose had said something to him and the boys were very, they said the, the boys were very disciplined when it came to Jose. So when Jose would say something, they would immediately do whatever it was that Jose told him. So there wasn't no like back talking or they just continued to do what they were doing. And so Jose had told Lyle to calm down or stop what he was doing because he was kind of jumping around and um, had a lot of energy. And his uncle didn't think Lyle hurt him because Lyle continued to play around. And so his dad grabbed him and he said, I couldn't hear what he said to him, but immediately he peed his pants. He peed his pants and then his dad grabs him to take him into the back room and the uncle follows because he's like, something's not right. And when he gets to the room, he sees his dad with a closed fist punch him in the chest and stomach. It, like the kid's a grown man. And now no, there, there wasn't anybody that indicated that they saw any sexual abuse. Nobody at no point in time said that they saw sexual abuse, but there was um, some incidents that took place, such as Lyle admitted on the stand that at eight, he molested Eric. 
he was eight, Eric was six. That's a behavior of somebody who's been sexually abused. At eight as well, Lyle was diagnosed with um, speech articulation disorder. He also was having issues with his performance in, in school. He was diagnosed with teeth grinding a couple years later. He had stomach pains and, and headaches, same with, with Eric. So there's different things that they saw throughout the years in their medical records that definitely lined up with their story. I think what some people had a hard time with was believing the solid evidence. And so that's really sad. And then at, I want to say around 14, 15, somewhere around that age, Lyle and Eric, 14 and 12. So Lyle was 14 and Eric was 12. They had a cousin who came to the house. Um, this was the same cousin who they had told about the abuse some years back that Lyle had confided in. So there was there was stuff that was said prior to this that there was an issue, that there was sexual abuse happening. So it wasn't like sexual abuse came out as soon as the case happened. There was stuff that came out before before the case was ever a thing. But when they were 14 and 12, they were playing around with their cousin and kind of wrestling around and they tied her up and they ripped her shirt off. And of course she screamed because that's not normal behavior. And they immediately like stopped, you know, left her alone. But that's also a behavior of somebody who's been sexually abused. And even back then we knew that. So when you have all these experts that come in and talk about these different things, it's really sad that, and that's why the two juries in the first trial, why they had two hung juries. And guess what? In the second trial, they didn't allow any of that information in until the sentencing phase, which is why they didn't get death. Really, really sad to me, you know, and there was things leading up just throughout the years. It was just, I would say on the mom's part, you know, I never really heard anything. She did a little bit of pushing and a little bit of like, she didn't do anything major. There was no major physical abuse or sexual abuse that, that the boys alluded to or that the family alluded to. The one thing that they did say was that she wasn't a loving parent that um, she definitely had some psychological impact on them because she said a lot of very negative things to them, talked to them like they were somebody that she didn't know off the street. Lyle was very advanced when he was born. He was actually standing at five months and walking at seven months. And he was riding a bike like two years old without training wheels, three years old without training wheels. And so he would ride back and forth on his bike without his mom's knowledge or anybody else's knowledge back and forth between the houses. And when um, his aunt said something, she's like, kids learn more when you leave them alone. Like they're going to learn to defend themselves. So like she just was kind of aloof with how the kids were doing. And there's there's so much more. There were so many more things as far as the abuse a lot of went. what you a lot of what you're talking about is just bad parenting to me. Besides the actual punching, like you shouldn't punch a kid. Obviously, that's that's definitely abuse. But. I'm saying if your defense is going to be I was sexually abused and no one comes into the court and goes, I saw it, then that's really hard to, you know, if somebody would have came in and said, hey, I saw him being sexually abused, it's obvious. But when you come in and say, ah, I saw this sign and I saw this other sign and I saw this and this could have been a sign. That's like hindsight 2020. Everything can be a sign when you're looking backwards. You know right. what I'm saying? When you're looking back, oh, this could have been a sign and this could have, but, but I, I feel like if they would have had a, a defense where somebody would have came in and said, I saw this, but you know, Jose Menendez was very careful in not being exposed in that kind of way. So That's true. The kids weren't allowed to leave their property. Yeah. Um, they weren't allowed to have friends. Lyle talks about even in sports, how his dad would say that his philosophy was that he couldn't have friends because then he wouldn't be as competitive. So everybody was kind of looked at as a, and not an ally on your yeah. team. 
So you know what I think stands out? So I was watching I was watching a documentary on the Menendez brothers, and one of the things that I saw was the mom had been recording their phone calls. I was always thinking, why would she want to record the phone calls? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you want to record your kids' phone calls? And I started thinking about it. And Their would phone you just, calls with who? Just any phone calls made from oh. the house because it was a house phone. It was a, it was a landline. Um, but they were recording it. They had a device that would record all the calls. And so I didn't realize why you would want that until just now when you were making your comment because if she was afraid that they would tell someone something, that might be why they were recording. In talking about, obviously, their defense, I also want to talk about the other piece of it, and that's some of the different things that kind of came out throughout the case as well that would have been against the Menendez brothers. At one point, somebody said that they knew there was evidence, which has never surfaced, that Eric was doing some gay stuff in prison. There was an acting coach that showed up at the prison that was helping them get their testimonies ready so that they could be emotional. The prosecutor in the case in the first trial um, the female prosecutor, she had made a comment that they were high-fiving each other. You know, one of the guys from the prison told her that they were high-fiving each other every day after trial saying, like, hey, we did a good job. But e but even some of those things, like I, like, I think about that. Obviously, they were trying to say that Eric was gay, but I think about, like, even the high-fiving, and I don't even know if that occurred or not. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But mentally, they weren't adults. I hate to say that, but they really weren't. Mentally, they were not adults. They had been abused for years. It it honestly is obvious in all the evidence. And of course, fast forward, some stuff has come out now that really kind of brought all this to a head. So overall for the case, the victims would be their parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez. And the only two offenders would be Lyle and Eric Menendez. For the evidence, they did have one taped confession from them. And the motive is believed to be financial gain, although this hasn't ever been proven. And for the sentence, both Lyle and Eric were convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstances and sentenced to life without parole. I know we, we kind of just kind of vaguely went over the motive. They never were able to prove that there was a financial motive. Yes, they did spend a lot of money after they got some of the money. The first chunk of money that they got was their dad's life insurance. And I want to say they each got like a little over 300K after taxes. And the things that they bought, like Lyle bought a Rolex watch. He bought a car, his dream car that he always wanted. He bought, now keep in mind that they're kids. And like I said, their maturity at that age wasn't normal for normal adults either. So a normal adult at that age, if you think about it, that had that kind of money would probably do the same thing. And their, their family said that they weren't spending any differently than they were before. It's just the fact that they had more money to spend, but that their spending habits were the same. Lyle bought a business. He bought a like a chicken place. Eric was kind of a, more reserved as far as the money went, but he also had just become an adult recently. So he probably wasn't into the spending like Lyle had already been for a couple of years, like being away at college, away from their parents. But they were never able to prove um, a financial motive. Yes, they did stand to inherit about $16 million. And there is a law in the state of California where if you're convicted of a crime, you cannot inherit any money. So by the time they were convicted, they had blew through just about every penny of that, of that money for their legal defense. So they spent almost $16 million in. And of course, during that time, like things were being sold off, the houses, they, because there was more than one house that the family had, things were being sold off and whatnot. And 
at the end of it, it the whole estate totaled to you know almost sixteen million dollars, somewhere around that that figure. That taped confession was was that the tape confession that they got from the, their therapist. It was kind of interesting how they were even able to obtain that. So that started because the therapist who had been their therapist previously. Um, so this was somebody that was known to them before any of this took place that they had been going to for therapy. After the murders, the brothers continued to go, at least Eric did initially, and he ended up confessing to the murder. When he confessed, the therapist decided, I'm going to start recording these conversations. So first you have to ask yourself, if this isn't something that you typically do with all your patients, that's odd. That's really odd. And then his reasoning, he would state later, is um, out of some type of fear, but he continued to see him in reviewing all the case, and it would be a lot for me to talk about now, but I think he was going to try to bribe him or extort him because he ended up having his license pulled, and there was multiple cases that came forward where um, there was incidents with um, other patients of his. How they obtained the, the tape in the first place was a woman that he was seeing, who was his mistress at the time, when he broke up with her, she decided, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm mad at him. I'm going to go to the police. And she went to the police, told a lie to the police. The police went and got the tape. So the fact that she told a lie and they got the tape in the process of that lie, I think should have been an issue. Anyways, they get the tape. They were going to try to use all the tapings and they argued back and forth. And eventually the court upheld the fact that they could only use one. And it was, it had to do with the fact that at one point, there was a conversation about um, that seemed like a threat, and because it seemed like a threat, it had then voided the patient confidentiality. Yeah. So that's how that was able to be used. Um, he also testified for um, the prosecution's case as well, as did his mistress, who changed her story. Um, she said that he did some mojo on her. <laughs> She's brainwashed. Yeah, she says she's Mojo. <laughs> she, she says she was brainwashed. So I, I wanted to, to talk about some of the things to come. So one of the reasons um that we chose to do this case was some some new things that were coming out and I actually didn't know at the time what exactly was coming out. I had heard some things, but they had come out with a documentary called Menendez um plus Menudo. So we started working on the case before the release and when the case was released found out just like the rest of the world the documentary that, yes that row uh that roy rosello who was a member of the puerto rican group menudo publicly pro proclaimed that he was drugged and raped in jose menendez's new jersey home when he was about 14 years old this is important because this validates their case and because they can't be retried for the same crime their attorney is actually trying to have their record completely expunged basically to have it thrown out like the case never took place um, because they can't be retried and honestly at this point taking them back to trial i think they should have gotten manslaughter with all the evidence that's out there i think they should have gotten manslaughter they should have never gotten a conviction of first degree murder but with this evidence coming out it solidifies the fact that they shouldn't have gotten first degree murder and because they can't be retried, it would be silly for the state of California to want to spend the kind of money to go back into a trial. So I think they're going to get released, truthfully. What's the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter? So first-degree murder means that you had an intent to kill somebody. You made a plan. So you, you made a plan. There was intent there. You didn't just, like, we didn't get in a fight and then you killed me. 
in the course of our fight. Like you actually planned it. That's first degree murder. Um, manslaughter is you get drunk and you hit somebody's car and kill them. Oh, okay. So, um, and manslaughter is a, is a conviction that typically is given to people who like a spouse who's abused, who ends up killing their spouse. Kind of like self-defense. Yeah. Which is what they were claiming. One of the reasons that they had a hard time is because of the gap of time from that they had so many days that they were talking about where they went and bought the firearm so many days before. So there was an element where the prosecution was trying to say that they were planning, that they had a plan moving forward. But they were saying that they were doing these things out of fear and that they were trying to protect themselves and everything just kind of came to a head on that day. Basically, in this case, uh, with the Menendez brothers, there was a toxic situation and it evolved in a toxic way and it caused massive, massive damage to that family. 30 years later, they finally have a witness coming out that can, that can co corroborate the story about Jose Menendez being a sexual abuser. And this will hopefully give these guys some level of justice in their lives. They've already given up 30 plus years of their life to the prison system. So now hopefully they get some kind of relief and, and they get to maybe go and live a little bit about their lives. I think these guys are my age now. They're in their 50s now. So they're older than me. So they're, they're definitely in their 50s. So I feel like at least they can have a, a few years. <laughs> a few <laughs> years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're going to come out not the same people. Yeah, they're, they're not the same people already. If you suspect someone's being sexually abused or you're being sexually abused, that should be reported. You should report it to somebody in authority. Well, this case truly demonstrates the flaws in the legal system and the corruption that can uh, impact a case. Uh, the justice system matters, just like the representation you have matters. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.